Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went on, or he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he said, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the, their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So this week, I read an interesting book review at this point. Oh, I know, this is a discouraging way to begin a message, right? I should say, this week I saw an exciting movie, but you're a bookish crowd, so we're okay. This week I read an interesting book review. At this point in my life, I read a lot more book reviews than I actually read books. But... Uh, Daniel Darling is a Southern Baptist executive, an executive in the Southern Baptist Church, wrote a book entitled The Original Jesus, Trading the Myths We Create for the Savior Who Is. And his thesis is that we have a lot of different kinds of people promoting a lot of different kinds of Jesus, not the original one today. So he describes Jesus the Guru, Uh, The Red Letter Jesus, Braveheart Jesus, the American Jesus, the Left Wing Jesus, uh, the Dr. Phil Jesus, the Prosperity Jesus, the Post-Church Jesus, the BFF Jesus, uh, the Legalist Jesus, and the Plato Jesus. And then he says, well, none of these is the original Jesus. And he portrays the Savior from sin, Jesus, as the original Jesus. Now, the intriguing part is not that we have all these cultural Jesus and and that, you know, basically God created the world and he made us in his image. And ever since then, we've been remaking God in our image. That's kind of conventional. People recognize that. 
But the intriguing part is that as he goes through all these, what he calls fake Jesus, all these myths, then he settles on a particular Jesus. The Jesus who died for our sins, Jesus. And the book review, this author was a Southern Baptist, the book review was written by a Wesleyan who had been on staff with Duke University. And his response is, he didn't take dispute with all these other mythical Jesus, all these other cultural Jesus, but he raised a question about Darling's Jesus. He said, Christ's work, according to Darling's telling, Christ's work is mostly about individual salvation from our sins. It doesn't challenge us politically, economically, racially, or culturally. He adds, I didn't hear enough about Jesus as teacher, as master of disciples, as healer, as troublemaker, as scathing critic of the rich, or as lover of enemies. You know, none of these Jesus are really kind of false, mostly. Mostly they're just incomplete. And, and both the book and the book review reflect the tendency of our culture to truncate Jesus, to make him smaller than he was, to make him kind of different than he was. And we kind of do that too. You know, the, the Savior from sins, Jesus, is the one we're most familiar with. And so we're kind of sympathetic with Daniel Darling. And this is certainly a crucial part of Jesus' ministry. But maybe it's a truncated Jesus. All last year, uh, for those of you who weren't here, come see me, I have a summary of last year, but all last year we were looking at salvation history. We were looking at the broad sweep, what you could call the meta-narrative, that runs throughout the whole Old Testament from beginning to end. And, and now we're looking at how salvation history, how understanding the point of the Old Testament, how that affects our understanding of the New Testament, how that affects our understanding of Jesus. And one of the things you could point out is that, really, is that reading the Old Testament through the lens of salvation history opens our eyes to a larger Jesus than the one we're accustomed to. A slightly different he certainly endorses how we take him, but he does more than that. And we see that clearly in today's passage, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at three pieces of this. This is really, Jesus is just beginning his ministry. And Matthew sets out a summary of what's to come. He's going to look at Jesus' message. He'll introduce us to Jesus' messengers co-workers, and he'll look at Jesus' method. So this is basically a, a, a prezi to anticipate what's to follow in the rest of the book. But notice how Jesus' ministry is just beginning here. Chapter 4, verse 12. Maybe 683. Chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Now the translation withdrew is not great. It sounds like Jesus is running away, right? So Jesus has gone down to Judea, the southern part of Israel. Jesus has gone to the southern part of Israel to be baptized by John and to, to be there at John's ministry as John is attracting all sorts of crowds to announce that Jesus is coming. Jesus comes down to Judea. And then John is imprisoned. He's arrested. 
and put in jail. And so Jesus goes to Galilee. It sounds like he goes to the north. So it sounds like Jesus is running away from the trouble in Judea to get away in Galilee where he could be safe. But notice how Matthew 4 continues. Leaving Nazareth, he left a small village, his hometown. He left a small village, and he went and lived in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a, a bigger town on the borders of the uh, lake, which was by the Sea of Galilee in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Notice then how Matthew describes it. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Jesus' message. It looks like he's running away, at least the way it's translated here. He withdrew to Galilee. But what does he do? From that time on, he begins to preach. And notice what he preaches. Repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Where we heard that before? It's exactly the same message, exactly the same message in the same words as what John the Baptist had preached. So John the Baptist gets arrested in Judea and can no longer preach publicly. And so Jesus says, he doesn't run away. Jesus says, this is my time to start. And he picks up John the Baptist's message and he begins to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has come near. Why then move to Galilee? If he's not running away, why move to Galilee? Do you see Isaiah 9, quoted here in, verse, uh, in Matthew 4, verse 13? Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the Sea of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light is dawn. Jesus goes to Galilee because Scripture, 700 years earlier, said that God's new work would begin in Galilee. It would begin in the land of the tribes of the, the, the patriarchs of Zebulun and Naphtali. God had said 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah, this is where the new movement is going to begin. And John is killed. I'm sorry, John is arrested. He will later be killed. John is arrested, and Jesus said it's time for the new movement of God to begin. And so he goes back up to Galilee. He goes to Capernaum, to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, intentionally to fulfill the prophecy, intentionally to send a message that a new work of God is about to begin. Now, this comes from Isaiah 9, and bear with me. You know, I, I know we like to get right to the chase, but bear with me. We need to look at Isaiah 9 to understand what's going on. They knew their Old Testaments. It was the only Bible they had. So when Matthew cites Isaiah 9, they know what the point of Isaiah 9 is. We're not so familiar with the Old Testament, we hardly read it sometimes. So it's easy for us to lose the point. But turn with me to Isaiah 9, and we'll take a look at the message of Isaiah 9, and then what Jesus is meaning by it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 489, page 489 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 9, page 489. 
I want to divide this chapter and divides naturally into three pieces. The first part is all that Matthew quotes. Chapter 9, verse 1. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What's going on here? To see Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, by the way of the sea. These are all three references to the same area, the same geographical region. If you know about, if you remember from the talk, from our, our previous sermons on salvation history, if you know about the background of Isaiah, here's what's happening originally. When Isaiah wrote, here's what's happening. Israel had been invaded and defeated. Now, if you were just any normal human being at the time, any Jew at the time, you could say, we got defeated because, because Assyria was powerful and we're not powerful. We got defeated because they're a superpower and we're just a small nation. But God said, no. God said, you got defeated because I brought Assyria in. I brought Assyria in to conquer you as judgment. And Assyria defeated Israel tore down their walls, burned down the towns, deported the people. And Naphtali and Zebulun and Galilee are important because, Judas and, uh, because uh, Israel south, the south, and they were deported into Assyria, which is in the northeast. Zebulun, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, Galilee, these regions were staging grounds for deportation. You could say, much like the Holocaust in World War II, they had staging grounds where they would deport people to exile. And so here the people would come, the people of Judah would come to Ze the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the land that belonged to their ancestors. Here they would come to the land of Galilee to await deportation. Their nation had been destroyed, their relatives had been killed, their family members, their spouses, their children. They were the dregs that were left being dragged off into exile. And in the midst of that horror, in the midst of that violence and suffering, the word of God came to his people under judgment through Isaiah and said, look, this is devastating, but it's not the end. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. There is a time coming in the future not now, all you see is misery. But in the future, there'll be coming a time when you will see a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness. You've been invaded by infidels and they've conquered you, they've destroyed you. But there will come a time when those living in the land of deep darkness, on them a light will dawn. There's a promise here that even in the midst of the deepest suffering, there's a hope of restoration that God will one day save them. That he will rescue them, that he will love them, that he will forgive them, that he will bring them back to the land. And then we move on in verses 3 to 5. The story continues. What happens when this new day dawns? They'll be restored as a nation. There'll be a new day for the entire... Verse 3. God has enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice. Before you, as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
God will forgive them and bring them back, and it'll be a great time of celebration. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. You will free them from the Assyrian occupiers. And you'll give them political freedom and liberty and prosperity, and they'll all rejoice. Not only that, God will put an end to war, verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destined for burning. They'll have this massive bonfire burning everything they need for war. Everything they've used in war because there'll be no more need for it. There'll be no more war. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. God is going to bring in a new day where he's going to bring his people back from exile. He's going to restore them as a nation and they, they will experience peace and prosperity Enjoy. And Isaiah has a third message. Verses 6 to 7. Why, how, when will this come? You know these words. For, us to us, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A new day will dawn. The nation of Israel will rise like a phoenix from the ashes because they'll have a new king. A child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One little other detail you need to know about this. This was said 700 years before Jesus. The other, not little detail, the other crucial component of this is for seven hundred years Israel waited and several times it seemed to be about to happen but it never did seven centuries they waited within 150 years some had come back from exile and were resettled in the land and they thought this is it now we're going to see a new day. Now we're going to see a rebuilt nation. Now we're going to have our king, son of David, reigning forever. But they were still occupied by infidels. It didn't happen in, the, in 500 B.C. For centuries they were occupied by infidels. God's word was not fulfilled. And then, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we what's celebrated in Hanukkah, 2nd century B.C., some Jews rose up against their oppressors and said, we will not live like this anymore. And they had a, uh, a revolt, a guerrilla war. And, and they won. And they sent the enemy out. And then people thought, now, now Isaiah will be fulfilled. Now this will happen. Now we'll have a new king. Now we'll have a new nation. Now we'll have a new day. But within a hundred years, they were again 
captured by infidels. And in this case, it was worse because what they had first was civil war within Jerusalem and within Judea, within Israel. They had civil war, and then one of the losing sides invited the Romans in, and the Romans invaded, and again they're captured by infidels. And the promises of God dissipate into the thin air. 700 years. So when Jesus is born, and the Magi come to Herod, king of the Jews, who was not king of the Jews, he was a puppet imposed by the Romans, and he wasn't even Jewish, and they said, where is this one born king of the Jews? People are thinking, Isaiah chapter 9, a new king. And Herod's thinking, Isaiah chapter 9, a, a new king. And he kills the babies in, Ju- in Bethlehem, hoping to kill Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what's going on here yet. Matthew is like a historical novel. He unfolds his point chapter by chapter by chapter, episode by episode by episode. And I know, we, we want to have a, a self-contained sermon, and we've got one passage that answers all the questions. And, and Matthew doesn't do that here. Instead, what he does is he kicks out those answers that we already have, uh, that we're standing on. He kicks that platform out from under our feet. Whatever is going on here, it's not just about the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. It's not just about the forgiveness of individual sinners. Because Isaiah is not just about the individual forgiveness of individual sinners. Isaiah is about the work of God in Israel and then through Israel and the rest of the world. And when Jesus... And when John the Baptist come, they don't say, now individuals can have their sins forgiven. What does John the Baptist say? Now the reign of God has begun. You know, we say the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God. I, we're stuck with that translation because it was so familiar to us. But any New Testament scholar will tell you it's the reign of God has begun. What's the message of John the Baptist? Isaiah 9 has come true. There's a new king who will reign over a new nation. It will be a new day. This is John the Baptist's message. And when John the Baptist is locked in jail and about to be killed, uh, John the Baptist is locked in jail and about to be... How can John the Baptist be locked in jail if there's a new king and a new nation and God is reigning and it's a new day? How can he be locked in jail? How can he be soon to be executed? If there's a new king, and a new kingdom, a new reign, and a new day, how can the prophet of God be executed? Matthew doesn't explain that yet. At some point, maybe. But he says, look, this day we've been waiting for so long, this day we thought was about to come, John the Baptist says, that day has now come. Because a a new king has risen. And that king is going to reign over this nation and restore this nation to glory. And then when Jesus, and John is locked up in prison, when Jesus starts his ministry, what does Jesus say? Same exact thing, repent. For the reign of God has dawned. And he's 
cites Isaiah chapter 9 so we can't miss the point. On those living in the day of, in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Jesus says, a new day has dawned. And it's not just about the forgiveness of individual sins, although, although that's part of it. It's got something to do with geopolitical conflicts. It's got something to do with a world that's violent and broken and at war. It includes the forgiveness of our sins, but it's a lot broader. That's not where Matthew starts. That's not where John starts. That's not where Jesus started. Now, before we move on, we've got to deal with one little discrepancy, some cognitive dissonance for those of you who are in higher education. This passage should create cognitive dissonance for us. Because remember what you know, Pastor David prayed about, how he led us in prayer a little while ago. Has a new king really come? Has a new day really dawned? Is God really reigning over our world? Look, Isaiah chapter 9 was a problem for Israel in Jesus' time. Because they, Isaiah's readers, you know, Israel had been brought back from exile once. But they didn't have a new king. They had a puppet governor. They didn't have a wealth, wealthy, peaceful, prosperous nation. They, had, they were occupied by infidels. They, they didn't have a new day. So when they came back in 538 B.C., it wasn't what they were told. Now you realize, if you think about the correspondence between this text and Pastor David's prayer, you realize that this should create cognitive dissonance for us as well. A new king? Well, we say Jesus is king, but we don't, he doesn't really reign in the way you expect a king to reign, right? This world doesn't march to his orders. A new nation, a time of prosperity and peace and tranquility and the absence of war, we don't see that. You know, just think about Syria alone. Reports, estimates are that half the nation of Syria has left their homes. A nation of, I think, 23 million people. What do you do with 11 and a half million homeless people? I mean, you throw some of them into Europe, but that doesn't begin to account for it. What kind of a world is this? And yet, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said. Now, we could say, okay, the Syrians, they're not believers, but what about... What about the 1970s in Uganda? Or what about the 1990s in Rwanda? What about the 2000s in South Sudan? What about the Iraqi Christians in Iraq today? This is not the kind of world we expect. This is not the kind of world that we anticipate when Jesus makes this promise. The reign of God has come we should experience some cognitive dissonance over this. Now, Matthew doesn't solve it yet. But at least he raises the question for us. If Jesus is this king, and this reign of God has come, and a new day has dawned, if this is true, why is life still the way it is today? 
Matthew will spend the rest of his gospel unfolding what Jesus' function is as king. Matthew will spend the rest of the gospel unfolding it. In what sense Jesus is building a new nation? He will spend the rest of his gospel unfolding in what sense this is a new day. He won't answer it for us today. I won't answer it for us today. But at least, if nothing else, let's grasp this. Jesus makes a promise, a declaration. That presupposes that our world is broken. When we have disturbed people shooting each other in American universities, when, we, when the world has a four-year civil war and half the population has to flee, this is the message that our world is broken. And Jesus comes into that world and acknowledges this world is broken. His message is, first of all, that this is not what God intends. His message is, secondly, he's going to do something about it. He started doing something about it 2,000 years ago. He's still doing something about it. As we go through this gospel, we will see what God intends to do about it, what Jesus intends to do about it. But for this morning, let it be enough to affirm these two things. This is not what God intends for our world. And he will, is, finally now, doing something about it. We'll look in future weeks at what he's doing. Let's pray together. Father, we affirm the veracity of your judgment on our world that it is broken. We affirm our confusion over how this world can still be broken. We turn to you, Jesus, to learn from your ministry what you're doing to set it right. We ask for your word to be our comfort and our confidence. In your name we pray. Amen.